Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Those are, of course, the first two verses of Hallelujah, What a Savior, or as it's recorded in the Trinity hymnal, uh, song number 246, Man of Sorrows, What a Name. And this song, these first two verses, capture the essence of what's going on here. And it captures the essence of what you must understand if Jesus' work is to be yours. I cannot overstate or understate the significance of this. If you look at this passage in any other way and fail to see that you should have been there, you have missed it. Jesus was condemned for us. Okay? He wasn't condemned just because the religious leaders hated him. He wasn't condemned just because the, Pilate, the, the, the Roman governor thought it was expedient to deal with one person than a riot. Okay? He was condemned because we were guilty. And it was his love for us that led him there. So that in the words of Isaiah 53, it is by his wounds that we are healed. Okay, he was crushed for us. And then, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah who is to be the ruler of the world, and he will destroy every power and principality and reign forevermore. By his blood, he institutes a new covenant and inaugurates a new kingdom but it's one the world doesn't want. It's one the world will always turn away from. So in this passage, I want to look and see. And I want to show you how even from the beginning, what's going on now has been going on since Jesus stood before Pilate. So look with me, please. Uh, Last week, we concluded chapter 14. And at the end of chapter 14, which, which has... It ends talking about Peter running out and weeping because Jesus had predicted that he would deny him three times. But in terms of Jesus, it ends with him being condemned by the religious establishment. Okay, in chapter 10, verse 45, he had predicted that he would be rejected by the Jews, the religious authorities, and then the Roman government. So he's condemned by the Jewish leaders. And verse 1 of chapter 15 is them basically getting their ducks in a row. Okay, they know that they want Jesus dead. They were looking for witnesses to justify killing him. They just want him gone. But they know that Pontius Pilate, as the Roman government, he wouldn't have cared less about their charges of blasphemy. They wouldn't have, he wouldn't have cared. So in 
chapter 15, verse 1, what they are apparently doing is working out the implications of what it means for him to be the Messiah. If he's the Messiah, he's the son of David. If he's the son of David, he's a conquering king. So king of the Jews is them working out his claim to be the Messiah, which he admitted to the high priest. So when they come before Pilate, they bring a charge that they know Rome will take seriously. Rome doesn't care about your religious scruples and problems and infighting. They do care about people claiming to be rulers. Because if someone's a king, then you are a threat to their power and their authority. So Rome takes those kind of charges super seriously. So this is now where Jesus is appearing before the civil magistrate. This is probably the only time he ever had audience with one of the actual governing powers. And he's standing before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, he's, uh, in our tradition, he's, he, when, when you hear the word Pontius Pilate, you think of someone with no moral compass, no moral backbone, a coward. Um, of course, in other traditions like the Eastern tradition, based upon a whole lot of extra-biblical stuff, they've actually made him a saint. That he, after Christ's resurrection, supposedly he, he, uh, he, he converted to Christianity and all that. We have no basis for that. What we do have a basis for knowing is that he was despised by the Jews because he was such a capricious person. It was as if, on any given matter, he would flip a coin. Heads, he's going to be lenient. Tails, he's going to be harsh. They never knew what they were going to get. And so both the Jewish philosopher Philo and the Jewish historian Josephus wrote extensively about how much they despised the guy. Now, despite being mentioned in the Bible and despite the fact that non-Christian sources like Philo and Josephus attest to Pilate, in true higher critical uh, tradition, they for the last 200 years, liberals and skeptics tried to deny the existence of Pontius Pilate because no Roman sources ever mention Pontius Pilate. And that's what skepticism does. You know, you, you rule out, uh, I'll, I'll believe if I'm shown evidence, but yet, you know, every time there is evidence, you, you discard it away and say, I'm only going to accept it if it's in this package. Well, in 1961, an archaeological dig team uh, uncovered a building uh, monument, dedication monument, and, uh, and on it, lo and behold, in Latin, uh, Pontius Pilate, the prefect, was dedicating this facility uh, for the use of the people in the name of Tiberius. So there they go. They're satisfied. So now everyone believes that Pontius Pilate was a real person. Okay? Isn't that wonderful? So... Um, but Pontius Pilate here, he was governor of Judea for 10 years, from 26 AD to 36 AD, when he was fired by the emperor for being overly harsh. And then he was banished from government. So he got recalled to Rome, fired, you're never allowed to serve in government again, and then after that he falls off the historical map. So do not think that a 10-year tenure as governor of Judea means that he was a bigwig. Judea was some backwater, nobody, know-nothing place. It was the sticks. It was the backwater of the Roman Empire. 
a 10-year tenure here indicates a stalled-out career. His government was plagued with all sorts of corruption and bribery. He was not a good guy. Now, the Roman legal system, as you're probably well aware, uh, was highly developed for Roman citizens. For Roman citizens, there was very specific uh, treatments and very specific penalties that could be meted out, very specific charges that could be brought. But if you were a non-citizen, like most people in the Roman Empire, like Jesus, like everybody there, it's incredible. The, the Roman governor, he, he could do almost anything. There was no legal code. He could do whatever his discretion wanted, like release an insurrectionist murder Barabbas, just like kill an innocent man because it was convenient. He could do whatever. Now, the one thing we know, though, is that the particular form of execution, and they had a number of forms of execution at their disposal, but the particular form, crucifixion, was reserved for crimes of sedition. That is, crimes against the state. Crimes that threatened the established order of things. So we know that the two people, for example, who are crucified next to him then, in most of your versions, it says they were thieves. That's not a good translation. They would not be crucified for simple thievery. They were criminals. They were most certainly a part of the same insurrection that Barabbas was a part of. They were his accomplices. Isn't that interesting? There was going to be a crucifixion that day. Three men were going to die. But who were they going to be? So they bring him to Pilate. And uh, he's... Asking him questions. They're asking him questions. They're, they're, they're making accusations about Jesus. And it says in verse 5 that when Jesus doesn't say anything, that he is amazed. Now the Greek word translated amazed actually conjures up the, the implication of admiration. He's, he's, he marvels. He's impressed that he's not saying a word. Because in the Greco-Roman ideal, the Stoic ideal that was so prevalent in the Roman world, a true, brave soul was silent in the face of misfortune and adversity. So his silence, while so uncommon, it's impressive. So in a very real sense, you can say Pilate was impressed by Jesus. But of course, to an unscrupulous man, being impressed isn't sufficient. Now, verse 2 brings us to the crux of the issue. Again, Pilate doesn't care about Jesus being the Son of God. I mean, what does that even mean? Pilate doesn't care. He asks Jesus the question point blank, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus gives one of his famous ambiguous answers. You say so. Now, is that a yes or a no? It's both and neither. What Jesus does here is he's putting it back into Pilate. You say I'm the king of the Jews because when Pilate asks the question, he's asking from a very particular vantage point. Pilate is concerned with the matter of are you a threat 
to Rome. When he asks if he's a king, he has a definite idea of what a king is with an army, with a geographic land they call a kingdom, with a court of advisors, a populace, and a law. And of course, Jesus wasn't there to overthrow the Roman Empire militarily. So in that sense, he was not a king. He was a king, wasn't he? He came to inaugurate a new kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And so in one sense, he is a king. But in the direct military sense, he's no threat to the governing powers. But in an ideological sense, he's very much a threat. Jesus was pretty revolutionary. Uh, If you look back at chapter 12, when Jesus was asked about paying taxes, and he says, give me the coin, you know, which, which they conveniently had, and it has the image of Tiberius. And on it, it says, Tiberius, high priest of the uh, son of Augustus, son of God. And we know that when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, he was establishing a new concept in the minds of those people for what it meant to be a citizen of a nation state and to be a faithful follower of God. Before Jesus Really, the world had never heard of such a thing. Emperors, kings demanded not just you to pay your taxes and stay out of trouble. Kings and emperors demanded your allegiance from the heart. Their word above all. Trusting in them absolute loyalty above all else. So that they were functionally your God. And Jesus introduced a new way that, yes, you are, to be, you are to be subject to the governing authorities. You are to pay your taxes. You are to obey the laws. But you don't render to Caesar what belongs to God. Only God can claim your worship. Only God can take the top of the cake as the one to whom you are absolutely loyal. And so Jesus taught his followers that every human relationship, every human loyalty, whether it's to your country, to your church, to your marriage, every human loyalty is secondary and subordinated to your relationship with God. God is absolute. And you honor the king. You honor the president. You pay your taxes. You say yes, sir, to the governor. You say yes, honey, to your spouse. You say yes, mom, yes, dad, to your parents. But when they ask you to violate the commands of God, you have to say, I can't go any further. I can't cross that line because I belong to God. That was new with Jesus. And so building from there, the Roman emperor and the Roman empire understood that Jesus was a threat. And Jesus' followers were a threat. Virtually all of Jesus' followers are condemned for crimes against the state because they wouldn't worship Caesar. They saw worship of Christ 
as being in opposition to the state precisely because Rome, like every other empire, wants more than your simple tax money and compliance with laws. They want your affections. You will conform or you will be destroyed because we cannot have dissent. And it sounds very much like that rising totalitarianism that we see in our own country. We're in the name of free freedom from bigotry and whatever else. The most cherished, fundamental aspects of our culture are being thrown away. On many college campuses, you see it around the country. That the freedom to believe differently than the majority is on the verge of being snuffed out. And Christians have always understood that the right to believe contrary to the state is essential precisely because in every age and in every culture, the gospel is going to make demands and the gospel is going to make claims and the gospel is going to have priorities that rub against the grain of every culture. And so wherever the gospel has taken root in a society, we have seen an environment flourish where you can have such thing as dissent because the gospel itself demands it. Dissent. And so, Jesus is perceived by the authorities and Christians are perceived by the authorities as a threat. But Jesus did not come to overthrow the empire. He came to revolutionize how we relate to God. He came to revolutionize how we treat each other in light of the forgiveness given to us by God. Which is why going back to the beginning, it is so important for you to understand yourself as being freed because of Jesus being condemned for you. It should have been you standing there. It should have been you getting scourged. It should have been you getting spit upon and mocked upon. We think we're so nice. We think, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I, get, I deserve hell, but basically I'm a good person. We are rebels. And this is what we deserved. And it's only when we see ourselves like this that we can appreciate the forgiveness we've been given so that now we can turn around and be forgiving of others. Jesus is the one who taught the world to turn the other cheek. No one said that before Jesus. Jesus is the one who taught to give without any expectation of getting back. This whole notion of charity that we have in the world is only because of Jesus. Jesus came to revolutionize something. But he didn't come to overthrow a government. But Standing there next to Jesus was someone who was also a revolutionary. Barabbas. He was there, of course, because it said he had killed someone in this insurrection. He was a rebel against Rome. And so he would have rightly fit the bill for execution via crucifixion. And so Pilate asks, who should I give to you? And of course the people they clamor for Barabbas. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. In the Greek of Matthew uh, 27, 27, 16, in the Greek, it's included. But Barabbas was not his name. It's he was called that. In the Greek of Matthew 27, 16, which only in the English Bibles, only the NIV and the NET translate into the text, you know what his first name was? His first name was Jesus. He had the same first name as our Lord, which is why the rest of the they didn't include his name. They didn't want anyone else named Jesus. But in the Greek, in Matthew, it's there. His first name was Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? Two men named Jesus are up here on the dock. Who should I release to you? The one who was a threat, who was a threat to their power base. Or the one who was killing Romans, wanting to drive out the evil empire. The people always want a different Jesus. No one wants to be told, you are condemned. God is not okay with you the way you are. If you do not turn and repent and call upon my name and bow the knee to me, you will be condemned forever. No one wants to hear that. But man, they will clamor for the one who promises to save them from their enemies. Oh, you want to kill Romans? Oh, we love killing Romans. Oh. Mm. And the sad thing is, is they got what they want. And judgment often comes in getting what you want. That same impulse that desired the insurrectionist Jesus, that same impulse that thought it was great, that he was willing to fight and kill to liberate them from Roman authority, that same impulse grew and grew until, of course, the rebellion of 66 happened, culminating in their destruction in 70. They got what they wanted. And they got what they had coming. You reap the wind, or you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. That's God's word. Jesus came to revolutionize our understanding of God. And they rejected him for it. So they take him away, and they scourge him, which is not a beating. A scourging was, was, could have been by itself a form of execution, uh, they used the flagellum. It was a multi-whipped whip that had rock or stone or glass, and it would literally tear the flesh from the body. The blood loss was catastrophic. And then they mock him, and they don't just dress him up like a, some old king, these regional kings. They make a parody of the emperor. Only the emperor would wear purple. And they're almost certain that the crown they put on him would have been that laurel thing that the emperor would wear. And they're paying homage. They're literally getting down on the ground, bowing, prostrating themselves before him in mockery. And isn't that ironic? Don't you think? A little too ironic. That Jesus is the king. He's the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And they just don't see it. 
all they see is an easy target for mockery. Now, they lead him out to crucify him, condemned as an act of convenience because, you know, a Jewish life was cheap. You know, if, because of his absolute power almost, there was no ramifications for Pilate. Kill one innocent guy? Who cares? But on the other hand, the empire took a riot seriously, and in a riot, Roman soldiers could get hurt. And if that happened, there'd be reports to fill out, inquiries made, and Pilate was above all else a bureaucrat, and you know, bureaucrats hate reports. So he wanted to do them a favor, whatever. He's innocent, but who cares? And that brings us to the question that so many have asked. Who killed Jesus? The Jews? The Jewish leaders? The Romans? In Acts 2, in his Pentecost sermon, Peter seems to lay the blame at the people. You delivered him into the hands of lawless men to crucify him. But we can say that the Jews or their leadership, and, and understand that we are pretty individualistic. We want to lay blame at an individual, and, and, and most other cultures are much more covenantal. So the people are indicted by the actions of their leaders. Okay? That's why Peter is able to say, you guys handed him over, when in actuality, by our modern, very technical sense, it was just a handful of people, really. But they acted on behalf of the people. Okay, So we can say it was the Jews and the Romans acting together, but they were simply the instrumental cause. They were the ones used to bring about something. You and I both know that it was... God's good pleasure to kill his son. And it was Jesus' good pleasure to die for us. God put his son to death, and his son gladly bore that cross for the joy set before him. He endured the shame and the scorn of the cross. Now, why? Because, Roman, because of Mark 10, 45. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. So once again, it comes back to the fact that when Jesus was standing there, he was standing there in your place, accused of being a rebel against Rome, whereas we stand accused of rebellion against the true king. And Jesus became a curse for us so that we might be set free. So if you leave here thinking, I'm a great person, and I sometimes joke around, I deserve the best. And I do not, and you do not. We all deserve far worse than we ever get on our worst days. But in his mercy, our Lord set aside all of his glory the one who with but a twinkle of his eye could have obliterated everyone there, gladly endured the whipping, the scourging, the thorns, the slaps, the jokes, the taunts, the ridicule, because he became sin for you. 
And He endured the wrath of God for you so that you could indeed be free. Never forget, He stood condemned in your place. Let's pray.